Hey there, I'm Dr. Jen Mann, and I am filling in for Allie and Dr. James on Drop the Subject all week long. I'll be answering your questions and offering you advice. You may know me from VH1 Couples Therapy with Dr. Jen or VH1 Family Therapy with Dr. Jen, or maybe you've heard me on the Dr. Jen Show on the radio for many years. I'm the author of The Relationship Fix, Dr. Jen's Six-Step Guide to Improving Communication, Connection, and Intimacy. Also, Super Baby, 12 Ways to Give Your Child a Head Start in the First Three Years, and The A to Z Guide to Raising Happy, Confident Kids, and the children's book, Rockin' Babies, that I co-wrote with my mom, Grammy Award-winning lyricist, Cynthia Weil. I have a column in InStyle magazine called Hump Day with Dr. Jen that comes out every Wednesday that is filled with sex and relationship advice. You send in questions and I answer them. I'm also the mother of twins, but most importantly, I'm a licensed psychotherapist and I am here to answer all of your questions about anything and everything that you struggle with. Feel free to email me all your questions at askdrjen at drjenman.com. Two ends on Jen, two ends on man. Or you can post them on my social media at Dr. Jen Mann, D-R-J-E-N-N-M-A-N-N. And before I get to some emails and some caller questions, I want to talk a little bit about something that me and my other therapist colleagues are seeing a lot of. Right now, we're all under tremendous stress with this pandemic, with all of the repercussions that we're feeling, fears about our health, economic uncertainty. And what me and my colleagues are seeing a lot of is people turning to vices to deal with depression and anxiety over this pandemic. We all have coping skills. Some of them are healthy. Some of them are not so healthy and everything in between. An interesting report came out that Nielsen reported that alcohol sales in stores were up 54% in late March compared to that same time last year. Online sales of alcohol were up nearly 500% in April. I have a feeling it's probably even more now that we're in August. According to morning console poll of 2,200 U.S. adults in early April, 16% said that they were drinking more during the pandemic with higher rates with younger adults. One in four millennials and nearly one in five Gen Xers said they had upped their alcohol intake. Studies are showing that people who had stopped smoking, are starting again. People who do smoke are smoking more than ever. Another study came out that found that there was a 46.8% increase in dependence on internet use. More than 16% had longer hours of internet use. And there was a 23% increase in internet dependence. So we're all turning to a lot of things. Uh, You know, I'm sure if we looked at gambling, if we looked at sex addiction, I know I'm getting more and more calls about sex addiction, that people are turning to substances to deal with stress. Like I mentioned, we've got health concerns. A lot of people either have fallen ill and are dealing with the repercussions of that, or they have lost family members or have family members that have gotten sick. I know a lot of people who are out of work or have had to take major pay cuts, that there is enormous stress. We don't have our usual outlets. We can't go to our favorite bar down the street and grab a drink with a girlfriend. A lot of people are turning to a lot of different substances. And the question is really, is it a big deal if you're drinking a little more or if you're lighting up or if you're acting out? It doesn't matter. Do we just go, you know what, it's a pandemic. We just got to survive. Or do we need to look at it? Now, look, I'm a psychotherapist. So 
I always encourage people to look at their behaviors and their choices and to figure out who they aspire to be and what is in their best interest and what is in the best interest of their mental health. The problem with turning to these substances or acting out in these various ways is that, first of all, when it's a substance, it impairs our our judgment. We've all seen videos of people at bars. They've had a few drinks. They are not social distancing. They're not wearing masks. So we don't tend to have our best judgment when it comes to looking out for our own well-being. The other thing is that you don't learn coping skills, that when we feel these big feelings and then we numb them with something, those feelings don't just go away and we don't learn to cope with them. Once we sober up or once we face things, those feelings tend to be exponential. And if we have drank and then called an ex that we should have called or we have done something else that has other negative repercussions, then we also feel bad about ourselves in addition to not learning the coping skills. Along those lines, it can create secondary problems. You find you're drinking too much, you're probably going to be fighting with your partner. You may not be doing the best parenting that you could be. You may not be waking up on time for your meeting in the morning. So look, if you're finding yourself drinking excessively on a regular basis, it's worth seeking professional help. You know, there are 800 numbers you can call substance abuse and mental health services. They have a disaster distress helpline. 800-985-5990. Also, for people in recovery or are hoping to go into recovery, Alcohol Alcoholics Anonymous has tons of online meetings. You can just go to aa-intergroup.org. And not to mention that a lot of therapists and psychiatrists and physicians are doing telemedicine online as well as clinic visits. If you're worried you can't afford therapy, there are tens of thousands of low fee clinics for mental health all over this country. And most of them are now doing telehealth visits. So you can do therapy from your own home. But if you think you need help, just know that there is help available. And I think it's worth examining to say like, hey, is this something that is helping me or hurting me? Is this something that is getting me through the pandemic in a way that I'm going to look back on and feel good about? Or is this something that I'm not going to feel so good about. And by the way, this extends, this is not just drugs and alcohol. This, a lot of people are turning to food, doing a lot of emotional eating, or they may be starving themselves. They may be gambling too much. They may be having sex too much. You know, it's all about the compulsive behavior and about your relationship with the substance or the activity and how you feel about it afterwards. I'm Dr. Jen Mann, licensed psychotherapist, sitting in for Allie and Dr. James here on Drop the Subject. Coming up next, I'm answering a question from Denise, who did not understand the extent of her husband's messiness until they got married and she realized he is a hoarder. Drop the Subject, the new Channel Q. Hey there, I'm Dr. Jen Mann, and I am filling in for Allie and Dr. James on Drop the Subject this week. I'll be answering your questions and offering you tons of advice. You can find me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Snapchat at Dr. Jen Mann. Two ends on Jen, two ends on man. So I got a very interesting email from someone called Denise. Denise says, hi, Dr. Jen. Let me first say how I love you so much. Thank you, Denise. Uh, I love your shows and I love how you're so honest. You're the best. I hope you can help me with my situation. Okay, here we go. I just got married to my husband not too long ago. 
He is very messy, not the average dirty. I mean, very messy to the point where he leaves trash in his room. There are roaches everywhere. The house was disgusting. I noticed the signs when I started dating him, but I was in love. And you do things when you are in love. Forward wind. His mother passed away. With the help of my sister-in-law, we cleaned the house up and I moved in. The house needs work, but it's doable. When I'm trying to keep the place clean, he messes it up. I always complain about his picking up after himself or dishes or straightening things up. He always gives me an attitude. When I try to declutter and throw things away, especially when it involves his mother, he gets angry with me. If I am the woman of the house, he should be able to let me do what I need to do. He doesn't know what a home is. His mother was a hoarder as well big time hoarder, and they both lived in a filthy environment. I'm trying to make the house ours, but it seems like it's just getting harder and harder because he's grieving his mother. I believe he is depressed. What can I do? Please help. Thank you, Denise. The inside of a person's home is truly a reflection of the inside of their mind and of their psyche. And with your husband, this is not dirty or messy. This is a sign of someone who is really not well. And I can give you a lot of advice about the division of labor and tell you to make a list of chores and divide them, you know, evenly or pick ones you like, pick ones he likes and have family meetings to talk about what worked and what didn't. But this isn't really about chores. I think that your husband has some serious mental health issues and I think his mom did too. And the death of her was really a tipping point when it comes to his hoarding. I also suspect that since she was a hoarder and that action probably makes him feel closer to her. So if he is living in her house and she kept it messy and he keeps it messy, it's like she's still alive. And he doesn't have to face that she's really dead quite as harshly. I think that you've got a husband who has a lot of unresolved grief. I think you're right. I think he's depressed. I think that he probably has a pre-existing depression prior to the loss of his mother, but this has really put him over the edge. Obviously, like you said, you saw signs of this. You didn't want to see it because you were in love. You put your head in the sand and you've got to take responsibility for the fact that this existed prior to you choosing him as a partner but you chose to overlook it. And now it's coming up to bite you in the butt. And it's unfortunate for him because he's suffering so much. And it's unfortunate for you because to live like that is uncomfortable. It's anxiety provoking. It's upsetting. It causes enormous conflict. I think it's very important that he get involved in a grief and loss group. Right now during the pandemic, most therapists are doing online groups, online therapy that you can do at Zoom, FaceTime, so on and so forth. But I think that he really needs to do some work about his grief. But I think that it is even more crucial that he get individual therapy, that this is someone who um, has some serious mental health issues that go back a long way and that he needs to take a look at that. He needs help to treat the depression. He needs help in helping him to see how unhealthy 
what was the norm in his family when it comes to living conditions, this kind of hoarding and living with cockroaches and that kind of disheveled environment, that that is not healthy and that that's not normal and that he needs to be able to do the inner work. I don't think that he is going to be able to clean up. And even if he does, he's not going to be able to maintain it without doing the inside work to deal with the underlying issues. And he may even ultimately need a meds evaluation to be evaluated to see if he might be helped by some anti-anxiety medication or antidepressants. I hope that you will be able to help support him in doing that because this is no way for you to live and it's no way for him to live because it really is a sign of some serious, more underlying issues that have to be addressed. I'm Dr. Jen Mann, licensed psychotherapist. I am sitting in for Allie and Dr. James here on Drop the Subject, and I will be right back. Drop the Subject, the new Channel Q. Ellen, welcome to the show. Tell me what's going on. Thank you for having me. Um, Real quick, my 21-year-old daughter who lives with us and is going to school is a hoarder. To see her in the other parts of her life, at work, at school, she's a tremendously bright, engaging, funny, hardworking kid, and you would never know what is in her bedroom. Mm -hmm. It is disgusting. She has animals in there. Are they dead animals or are they live animals? Oh, I'm sorry. They are alive. Okay. They're her pets. Yeah. and. She doesn't take care of them as she should, and I've tried literally everything. I've offered to help her. She did this. She started this behavior when her dad and I got divorced. That was 2011 that we got divorced. We were going through it like 2009, 2010. She did it at his house. He didn't tell me at all. I didn't know until after the fact. And then they went in and cleaned her room for her, which she took great offense to. And I tried to explain to him, you can't do that. Uh, Hoarders tend to get very attached to their stuff and having them having their things the way they want them. So it can be very traumatic to, to just clean up someone's stuff when they're a hoarder. Exactly. They have to do it themselves. I've offered to help her. I'm I'm appealing to her greed, I guess you would call it. I told her she could get her room all redone. We'll get her a new bed, all that kind of stuff. But she has to turn her room around. Okay. But here's the thing. That doesn't deal with the underlying issue. Well, it may be a really good kind of cognitive behavioral motivation tool she's going to clean up her room, you're going to redecorate, and then it's going to go back to the way it was. And you're going to be even more upset because you spent this money. And, you know, you're not going to take back all the furniture and stuff you just bought for her. So the, the interesting thing about this is that you can really pinpoint that this goes back to 2011 during the divorce that you had with your now ex husband. The way I see it that there was something about that, that was particularly traumatic for her. And no divorce is easy and no divorce is easy on a kid, but that that has been the light switch that turned on this behavior to me means that we have to deal with the underlying trauma from 2011. 
that's what has to be addressed. And what, what we need to do is to get her into therapy, ideally with someone who has some understanding of hoarding, you know, it's a little bit kind of specified, but it, it, most therapists at this point have some sense of it. But if you can let the therapist know that this is, this is when this started, this is what you've observed, you know, hoarding is very symbolic in a lot of ways. And she's holding on literally to things, which makes me think that she's holding on to the past that she is holding on to that time before the divorce. It's interesting that she's so well functioning in school and in work, which is a great sign. So it means that kind of her emotional structure is still intact, but she just needs to deal with the trauma. Do you know she's open to therapy? I had her going and then she kind of, she's really um, closed off and stuff and she just kind of squeaks by and all of a sudden she wasn't going to therapy anymore. And I'm like, why aren't you going to therapy? So I'm trying to get her back in. Here's what I would do. I would let her interview like six people and pick the therapist. So give her a sense of control and power that she's the one that gets to do the picking. Also, you want to make sure that it's a good match, that someone she feels like she can open up to. And most people don't realize that picking a therapist is a pretty complicated thing that most people are like, oh, I found this person on my insurance list or, oh, my friend recommended this person. But it has to be a really good match on many levels because there are a lot of great therapists out there who your daughter might not connect with. It has to be just the right one. It's almost like dating. It's like the chemistry's got to be there. The connection's got to be there. So I would really let her interview a few people and then meet like at least three people and pick from those three people that she selects from the six. And, you know, even though you have to pay for those sessions, it's worth the investment because each person's going to give her some form of enlightenment, some nugget of information. And it will help her to feel like she can really pick. But at the end of the day, this is ultimately about the trauma that she experienced in 2011 that needs to be dealt with. So Ellen, thank you so much for your call. I really appreciate it. I hope that you're able to get your daughter help because I think that, look, the good news is she's doing so well in so many areas of her life, but this just needs to be dealt with. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Jen. Thank you for calling. Drop the subject. The new channel Q. Hey there, I am Dr. Jen Mann. I am a licensed psychotherapist and I am filling in for Allie and Dr. James on Drop the Subject all day. I'll be answering your questions and offering you advice. You can find me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Snapchat at Dr. Jen Mann. Two ends on Jen, two ends on man. So I came across this really interesting news story about COVID and about how often Americans say they are talking about the coronavirus outbreak. And it is a, it's based on a Pew Research Center survey that was conducted in April. And what they found was that 44% of U.S. adults say that they're discussing the coronavirus outbreak with other people most or all of the time, whether online, in person, or over the phone. And it's interesting because they also talked about, you know, Obviously, this virus has enormous reaching effects on all of us. And what they found was that 
in early April, more than four in 10 adults, 43%, said that they or someone in their household had lost their job or taken a pay cut due to the outbreak. And then about a quarter of them said that they were very worried about contracting the virus and requiring hospitalization. So this is obviously something that is affecting everyone. It is weighing heavily on our minds. And another part of the survey, they talked about that 31% of adults said they're discussing the outbreak with other people most of the time, while 13% say they're talking about it almost all of the time. When they looked at what the breakdown was, what they found was women are more likely than men, 47% versus 41%, to say that they talk about it most or all of the time. Black adults were more likely than Hispanic. 52% of black adults were talking about it compared to 46% of Hispanic adults. And what they found was that the younger you are, the less likely you are to talk about it frequently. Although, interestingly, those who are ages 65 and older, only 38% found that they talked about it all the time or most of the time. So college graduates tend to fall at about 43%. But look, I think that this affects all of us. And I think that we all have to find that balance between talking about it and obsessing about it and watching news all the time and also staying informed. I think that right now, the news can really get us down. And at the same time, I'm a bit of a news junkie myself. But sometimes good self-care in COVID means taking a little break from the news. And I know that I've had periods of time where I've watched tons and tons of news. And then I've had times where I've just felt so saturated. that I've said, you know what, I'm cutting down to an hour a day and I'm going to watch one show that I feel really does a good job summarizing what's going on. And Obviously, you don't want to put your head in the sand, but you got to stay informed while also maintaining your sanity. And so if you need to limit it to one hour a day, sometimes you got to do that. Also, sometimes you have to make boundaries with friends and family about the topic. I know that one of my daughters in particular said, I don't want to talk about this for a while. And so I really try very hard to respect her boundary and to not talk about it with her where my other daughter doesn't mind talking about it at all. Pay attention to how you feel talking to different people about the topic. It may feel okay to talk to Uncle Bob, and you may really enjoy the conversation. You may find it really informative. But when you talk to Aunt Susie, you find that it really gets you down, that maybe she is so negative, or maybe she's so up on the research that it's overwhelming, and you find yourself feeling really anxious. But it's fair to make different boundaries with different people. But you just got to make sure that you're very clear on that. But Obviously, this affects all of us, and we have to make sure that we practice really good self-care. This is a marathon, not a sprint, and it may be a while before we have a vaccine or a cure, so we really have to prepare ourselves mentally and take good care of ourselves. I'm Dr. Jen Mann, sitting in for Allie and Dr. James here on Drop the Subject. Coming up next, I am answering a question from Amy, whose husband has decided to reconnect with his very abusive mother who blames him for his father's death. She's not too nice to their kids either. I'm Dr. Jen Mann, and I will be right back after this break. Drop the Subject. 
the new Channel Q. Hey there, I'm Dr. Jen Mann. You may know me from BH1 Couples Therapy or BH1 Family Therapy with Dr. Jen. I'm a licensed psychotherapist and I'm filling in for Allie and Dr. James on Drop the Subject today. I'll be answering all of your questions and offering you tons of advice. You can find me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Snapchat at Dr. Jen Mann. Two ends on Jen, two ends on Mann. So this person writes and says, my husband and I are constantly running into the same problem with my mother-in-law. His mom and him had a terrible relationship growing up. They had no loving connections. She's an absent parent after the death of his dad and went into a depression and isolated in her room 24-7, left my husband and his brother to basically raise themselves from age 11 and 12 on. My mother-in-law even at one point blamed my husband for his dad's death, a heart attack. This drove them apart even further. Fast forward to him and I meeting, getting married, and having children. She and him constantly go back and forth about how she treats our children poorly compared to his brother's children. She treats them like strangers. She complains about babysitting for us, but then cries when we say we'll find someone else. She yells at her middle son, who has severe ADHD and autism, because he, quote, never listens, unquote. She treats my children from a previous relationship like garbage, because in her words, he's not biologically my husband's child. And that's a quote. And she favors our daughter more than our boys by a lot. She has told my husband on numerous occasions that she hopes she dies soon. So he can live with the guilt. And when she dies, she will tell his brother not to tell him. She has bad-mouthed me to my husband, and he asks her to stop, and she just cries. She cries any time we set firm boundaries and then proceeds to push them and defy them because she is his mom and family. My husband has made multiple attempts to cut her out of his life, and every time she manages to make him feel guilty or convinces him that she has changed for the better and will try harder. So he believes her. And we invite her back to visit our kids and check in with her. And almost immediately, her toxic behavior show again. We made the decision in January of this year to cut her out permanently, meaning no contact, no visits, no updates, nothing. After another explosive blowout where she was nasty to him again. A few months in, my husband checked in on her via text as he does every month or so. He feels terrible that she lives alone, and she uses that to her advantage by making comments that she is lonely or misses the kids. We recently announced to her that we are pregnant again, and since then, she has daily asked to come over and see the kids and make comments about seeing the baby in the hospital and stuff along those lines. She has never been invited to any other kid's birth, so I'm not sure why she would assume this. My husband has not suggested he wanted her over, but he does sound open to it. I am so lost and struggling to support him. If he decides to begin speaking to her again, I do not want her around my children ever again, but I do not want to upset my husband. Help. You know, I'm going to call her Jane Doe and Jane Your mother-in-law sounds like she really is mentally ill and she sounds like she is, she was a negligent mother to your husband. She is highly, highly manipulative 
And I don't understand. I got to be honest, Jane. I don't understand why you would ever let this woman babysit your kids when she's so cruel to them and when she talks about them. That's not the kind of people you want around your your kids. It sounds like she's actively trying to sabotage your marriage. Her guilt trips are truly Olympic level guilt trips. I've never seen anyone manipulate at such a high level. And, you know, a friend of mine used to say, your mom knows how to push your buttons. After all, she installed them. And I feel like she really knows which buttons to push with your husband and how to manipulate him into doing what she wants. And she's really gotten into your husband's head. He needs to be reprogrammed. Like when someone has left a cult and the cult has initiated them and influenced them and gotten into their mind, I feel like he needs to be reprogrammed like that. And the two of you should not give in to her crying so much. All her crying is is a manipulation. When you guys disconnected from her, which I think was a very healthy move for both of you, for your children, for your family, and she came back saying that she is going to do better and that she's changed, what evidence did she give you? What had she done to change? Had she gotten therapy? Had she attended a support group? Had she done anything? People don't change without taking action to change. Your husband really needs professional help to learn how to individuate from his mother and find the strength to stay away from her or make some very serious boundaries that he commits to regardless of crying or any of the other manipulation. And you say at the end of your letter to me that you don't want to upset him, but he's making choices that are upsetting you. And sometimes it's okay to upset our partner if it is something that is for the common good of our family and for our marriage and for our children. And I think that this is one of those things. And if he's unwilling to do individual therapy, which I really hope he'll do because that would be really the home run for him, ideally with someone who has a solid grasp in family systems therapy. Then if he won't do that, then maybe he'd be willing to do couples therapy with someone so that the two of you could work together with a professional to help him to understand how this is impacting the marriage and also how it's impacting his mental health and your mental health and your whole family. So Jane Doe, I hope that that is, is helpful. And I really, really hope that you're able to get some help for him. Right now, children and their families all over Southern California are going to bed hungry. Channel Q and Radio.com have an easy way for you to help feed local students and their families. Text the word NEED to 76278 to give a buck and put food in the mouth of a hungry kid and their loved ones. Just $1 to make a big difference. Learn more about Feed Our Families on socials and at wearechannelq.com. I'm Dr. Jen Mann, sitting in for Allie and Dr. James here on Drop the Subject. And coming up next, we have celebrity divorce attorney, Laura Wasser. Drop the Subject, the new Channel Q. Welcome back to Drop the Subject. I'm Dr. Jen, and with us is author, entrepreneur, and family law attorney, Laura Wasser. She has represented celebrities like Kim Kardashian, Angelina Jolie, Stevie Wonder, and Johnny Depp. She's one of the most well-known family law attorneys in this country. She is also the creator of It's Over Easy, an online divorce service that's giving divorcing couples an accessible and affordable resource to dissolve their marriage. Laura Wasser, 
Welcome to the show. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Obviously, we're in a pandemic. The divorce rates are skyrocketing. What do you say to the person who is sheltering in place? They've been trapped in the same home with their spouse for however many months, and they're thinking about getting a divorce. What is your advice to them? Well, my advice to them now is probably a little bit different than it was three or four months ago. Obviously, nobody anticipated that this would go on for as long as it did. And I think one of the key elements that is giving people so many difficulties in relation to their divorce or marriage and everything else is just the uncertainty. When will this end? When will we bounce back? How will it look when we come out of it? And, um, you know, you said divorce rates were skyrocketing. They're actually not um, for whatever reasons, whether it's because people are not able to get access to the courts or because people that have been stuck together for all this time have actually decided to take some of your advice and really dig deep, address some of the issues that they've had in the past use this time where you can't walk out of the house, where you can't schedule something with your friends or get away, where you can't necessarily throw yourself into work if you go to an office, but really, really focus on the issues you're having. I think a lot of people have been able to figure out a way to make their relationship richer and better. Doesn't mean that he or she is not going to drive you crazy during the entirety of the of the time you're together, but you can work through some issues. And I have seen a lot of couples actually doing that. If people were having problems before this started, this absolutely has been a very uncomfortable time, but a lot of them are still choosing to kind of wait it out again, because it's very difficult to have access to the courts at this time. And if you're talking to a couple who is in that position, they've been at home, they have had problems, maybe even before this, the pandemic has just made things worse. And you have someone who is just like, you know what, when the courts are open, I want to file, I want to get a divorce. What do they need to know? What should they keep in mind? What notes should they be taking? Calls should they be making? I would say one of the most important things, and just so it's clear, the courts are open. They're just super backlogged. So that's why a lot of people have been doing things online, online divorces, online mediation. That has been a huge tool right now. That is one of the things I would say is explore your options, educate yourself, figure out what this may look like for you, both as the result of being you know, during a quarantine period, but also just how, what are the next steps? I mean, that's why we created It's Over Easy, because in addition to being able to do your divorce online, there is a wealth of information about what it will look like. Remember the book, What to Expect When You're Expecting? It's Over Easy is kind of what to expect when you're divorcing. We give steps, there's, there's blogs, there's information so that you know, A, what it might look like. Obviously, everybody's situation is different, but also that there's a community of people who are either going through it simultaneously or have gone through it, and you can lean on them both for mental health issues, for financial planning. But what I would say to people is, do remember that uh, this is someone that is most likely going to remain in your life even after this business transaction, this legal you know, matter has been resolved. So take that into account because if you're going to be co-parenting with them or you still have you know, business interests with them in terms of partnerships, you don't want to burn your bridges there. And you also don't want to spend an inordinate amount of time, money, or negative energy on this if it is something that, again, you're going to have to still be dealing with this person at birthday parties, at weddings, at school conferences, et cetera. And can you explain a little bit more about what 
is it's over easy. One of the things that I hear, especially when money is an issue, is I can't afford to get divorced. And right. I think that over easy is such an amazing tool for people who are in that situation. So as you know, I've been practicing family law for a long time, and most of the clients of my firm are wealthy and or high profile individuals. And because as a younger attorney, maybe, you know, 10 or so years ago, I really was finding myself at dinner parties and, you know, picnics and school things, talking to people that were closer to my age and may not have been high profile or super wealthy about issues regarding their relationships and divorce. I thought, wouldn't it be nice to kind of provide that access to information to everybody. So I wrote a book called It Doesn't Have to Be That Way. And people really were appreciative of having that information out there. So that obvious next step, particularly taking into consideration everything that's happening with legal tech, was to create a platform where people could get divorce forms and get education about divorce and relationships and get access to if you needed professionals to help you with it all online. Yeah, it really is one of the most cost efficient, brilliant programs that I've ever seen for anyone who is going through a divorce. Because again, divorce is so expensive and most people can't afford an amazing, high profile, very experienced attorney like you. And it really is such a a gift to people who are going through this. Um, Laura, don't go anywhere. We're going to go to a break. But when we get back, I want to talk to you about co-parenting and how we manage that, especially during COVID times. Drop the subject. The new Channel Q. I'm Dr. Jen Mann. Welcome back to Drop the Subject. I am sitting in for Allie and Dr. James. Right now I'm talking with Laura Wasser. You've probably seen her in the media a million times. Pretty much every celebrity who has gone through a divorce has worked with Laura because she is such a brilliant family law attorney. And I'm fortunate enough to have her here to talk with you and me about divorce and co-parenting and all of these issues that are coming up more and more during these COVID times. Thank you, Laura, for being here. Thanks for having me. Can you talk to me a little bit about co-parenting during COVID and what parents need to know when it comes to what their rights are? I'm talking to a lot of parents who, and uh, you helped me answer a question while I was on Loveline from a parent who's spouse is not taking COVID very seriously. He's taking it very seriously. She's withholding a child from him. He's worried that when his child came back into the house, that they would be exposed to the virus. This seems to be the thing I see the most, where one parent doesn't take it seriously and is making choices that are dangerous and risky that could expose the child and the other parent to the virus. What are what are our rights and how do we deal with this? So when this all first started, Jen, we you know came up with around the country kind of task forces with uh, judicial officers and family law practitioners and mediators and mental health professionals to talk about how we're going to deal with this. Because of course, yes, there was a ton of people saying, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? This he or she isn't doing it the way I would do it. And not only does it expose our kids, but then it exposes whoever else is living in our home as they come back and forth. And remember, at that time,
time it was right around spring break. So you had kids that were in other circumstances going to be traveling to see their non-custodial parent. We then moved into summer. We talked about a lot of remote learning issues, which home are they going to be learning at? And now as we start the school year again, this is coming up over and over again. How are we dealing with these co-parenting issues? And I did write an article for it on the It's Over Easy Insights blog called Co-Parenting During COVID. One of the things, and again, you apply the same principles as you would during non-COVID times, which is what we like to call it, It's Over Easy, the three C's, which is cooperation, consideration, and communication. Now more than ever, we really, really have to exercise those. For consideration, even if one parent doesn't feel as angst-ridden as the other about hand washing, mask wearing, social distancing, you know, gatherings, etc. You really have to consider the other person's feelings. You may not feel that way, but this is a co-parent of yours. You're going to know them for a long time. You don't want to put your kid in the middle. So you have to be considerate of their feelings. And even if you may not feel as anxiety ridden about it as they do, you need to make it a concern of yours because it is a concern of theirs. That cooperation will also work in terms of if you can't have your kid traveling to the other parent's house, or maybe it is better for him or her to do their remote learning at one household, but still we don't want to disrupt the custody schedule, have some cooperation, figure out Zoom and FaceTime arrangements, figure out a way for both parents to have lots of contact with the child, even if they're not doing as many transitions between two homes. And of course, communication, always important as you've always told everybody, Jen, but this time really make sure you're doing it in a way that's loud and clear and perhaps in writing, because if you cannot work through your issues, I think it's very important to have a written record of how you have requested certain things, how you've made your desires and your anxieties clear. If you do have to end up going to court, having those written communications will be helpful. And so what the task forces have said is try to keep everything as consistent as possible. Try not to use this as leverage if you're a parent and try to really exercise those three seats. It's so true. And I, I wish that everyone exercised those three C's. It, it's unfortunate that there are a lot of parents where, besides the fact that it's contentious, where one person is just not cooperating. Do you think as a family law attorney, like, let's say you have a family where one parent, they've documented, they've emailed, they've done all the right things, you know, hey, I'm concerned about these things. This is a risk, you know, please don't take Susie to the wrestling match. He's going to be spit all over and breathed all over by other kids. The numbers are really high. And then that parent takes Susie to the wrestling match. Susie gets COVID, then brings it back to the parent who is more conservative and they get ill and have medical bills. Are there going to be lawsuits? Like, how does this play out once we're further along in this process? Is that something that you think is going to be happening? I do. And we've talked about this as well. I mean, look, one of the things that I tell people is there will be a day of reckoning. We can be uncertain all day long, but at some point, all of this will come to fruition. So God forbid Susie actually does get COVID and does pass it along and whatever else. But even if she doesn't, You Mm -hmm. still have those emails that you wrote saying, please, please, please be considerate of the feelings and the situation. And he or she still takes Susie to the wrestling match. 
then you now have a case to put in front of a judge saying they're not being the more considerate co-parent. They're not being the more conscientious co-parent. They may not be acting in our children's best interest. And this is something that needs to be looked at, or they didn't let me exercise my custodial time. And so I have this much makeup time. There will be a day of reckoning. Judicial officers are really starting as we're getting back into courts to slam people who are using this one way or another to their advantage and really putting their children in the middle and making an uncomfortable situation. In terms of the transmission of a disease, that's not a family law matter. That's more of a tort. So just like giving somebody herpes, if you knew you had it and acting recklessly or irresponsibly or any other sexually transmitted disease, I believe that there will be at some point civil actions that people will bring against each other saying, you did not act conscientiously. You took my kid or you exposed me to this. The problem, as with any of those tort cases, is how do you prove where they got it? And so, again, I'm not a civil attorney. I don't do that kind of work. I think you will see some of that. Laura, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. If you're listening, please check out it's over easy. If you are contemplating a divorce, if you are thinking about this, if you have questions about it, it is really one of the best resources that I have ever seen and one of the most cost efficient ways to go through a divorce. Laura, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Be safe. Drop the subject. The new Channel Q. Hey there, I'm Dr. Jen Mann. I'm a licensed psychotherapist. I am filling in for Allie and Dr. James on Drop the Subject. I'm so grateful to all of you for sending me your terrific questions. You can stay in touch with me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Snapchat at Dr. Jen Mann. Two ends on Jen, two ends on man. So I got an email from someone who we're going to call Maddie. And Maddie writes and says... I was dating my ex for five and a half years. It started out good. I was happy and so was she. She waited for me and didn't want to lose me. As time went on, that stopped. She used to drink and that's when I felt I saw her happiness with me the most. When she stopped drinking and started smoking, I barely saw that happiness. When we fight, she's quick to just say F it. We have communication issues. We didn't always. We've been broken up for three months now. I'm basing this off the fact that she thinks I was cheating because I didn't tell her who I was talking to on the phone. She's accused me of lying, but has no proof. She was the one who slept outside of our home, and she has so much anger. She said mean things. I am hoping that she doesn't mean them, and she doesn't speak to our son. My son was four and a half when she came into our life, and he is now 10. We've been broken up over three months now, and she recently deleted photos on her Instagram that have me in it, but still has pictures of our son up and still has certain pictures that has captions involving me like, quote, thanks to my wife, unquote. I am still in love because that's who I want to marry and be with and start a family. Do I just close this chapter or still fight even though she doesn't try to fight back for us? I feel like she thinks we're not worth it. Her ego is really huge. Oh, Maddie, this relationship sounds really, really messy. It sounds like there are some substance abuse issues. You said that she only showed her love to you when she drank. That's a problem. She sounds like she switched from alcohol to weed and is more emotionally distant. Sounds like you both have very low level communication skills. I got to call it like I see it, you know, and it also sounds like 
you guys fight dirty. When you say that she says mean things and that now she doesn't even speak to your son, it sounds like she's someone who cuts off the relationship quickly, that she does a lot of stonewalling where she just isn't responding, that you had this huge fight that was the end of your relationship. I mean, you don't, you're not even 100% sure that that's the official breakup date. You know, the way that played out, the way you described it shows a real lack of maturity on her end. And I'm sure you probably participated in some way. We tend to pick people who are at our level. This is irresponsible when children are involved. You don't have the luxury when you involve a child in your relationship and your son has been involved in this relationship for five and a half years. You don't have the luxury to have immature fights like this and walk out the door and not talk to people the way she has. I think that there is an innate lack of trust in the relationship that you're on the phone. You're not telling her who you're talking to. You're hiding that from her. Why are you hiding it from her that she doesn't believe you when you tell her that she's making assumptions that she's sleeping outside of the house because she's mad at you and not telling you where she is? Why would either of you trust the other person? I also think that this whole thing of deleting the Insta photos that either she's trying to make a dramatic statement. And again, she's doing this without words after a five and a half year relationship that involves a child is incredibly immature. Why do you want to start a family with someone who has a substance abuse problem is a terrible communicator end of the relationship without even a proper discussion, accuses you of things that you say you're not doing, sleeps outside the house, says mean things in the heat of an argument, abandon your son after being part of his life for five and a half years. Why? Why would you want this person as a partner? Why would you want to start a family with them? That would be an incredibly self-destructive, terrible choice. So you ask the question, Should I fight for this? Absolutely not. You should close this chapter and work on yourself. You need to do some therapy to better understand why you would be drawn to such an unhealthy person and why would you would chase after such a destructive relationship. I really, really want to encourage you. I always say that everybody should have one year of weekly therapy. And if you're concerned about money, There are low fee clinics all around this country. Therapists are required to do 3,000 hours under supervision where they get paid little or nothing. So there is free therapy available all around this country. And in this pandemic right now, most of it is teletherapy. So you can get great therapy and not have to leave your home. So I really want to encourage you to do that. This relationship sounds incredibly destructive. And what, what you also have to realize is that Our relationships are oftentimes a reflection of how we feel about ourselves. I'm Dr. Jen Mann, sitting in for Allie and Dr. James, and we have more Drop the Subject coming up next. Drop the Subject, the new Channel Q. Hi, I'm Dr. Jen Mann, licensed psychotherapist, filling in for Allie and Dr. James on Drop the Subject. I'm so grateful to all of you for sending me your fantastic questions. You can send me more. Find me on my social media at Dr. Jen Mann, two ends on Jen, two ends on man. And there are instructions on how to email me or you can just post them on my social media. On today's show, we talked about trust. We talked about recreating connection in a long-term marriage that has lost it. We talked about vulnerability, commitment, fear, loss, grieving, and of course, dating in a pandemic. Tune in tomorrow as I give more advice. And if you missed anything from today, make sure to check out the podcast. Just search Drop the subject wherever you find your podcast or on radio.com. 
I'm Dr. Jen Mann. Thank you so much for tuning in with me while Allie and Dr. James are on vacation. They will be back on Monday. Till then, you've got me. And even once they're back, you can still hear me on Drop the Subject. I come on each week and talk with Allie and James about all kinds of different topics and give advice. You can also follow me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, at Dr. Jen Mann, D-R-J-E-N-N-M-A-N-N, and the show, DTS, as in Drop the Subject, show. See you all tomorrow. Thanks so much for tuning in. Drop the Subject. The new Channel Q.